you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. I'm just going to read the first two verses. Today is going to be an overview. We're going to overview the book. I want to really uh, set us up, uh, tee us up as we move forward to really get the most that we can out of this book. And so I think it's great to just uh, start by really trying to get our arms around the background, the, the, the themes, the history, all of that in, in a book. And so there's going to be plenty of that today. I'd like to start by just looking at the first two verses here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is typical of Paul's greetings in all of his letters, uh, the Pauline greeting, very typical, and, and this is typical of ancient writing uh, letters. They would always start by addressing who, who the author is, who's writing, and so here we have uh, our beloved apostle Paul. He's writing here, and he has his uh, traveling companion, Silvanus. That's actually Silas, uh, and so it's interchangeably uh, Sylvanus or Silas. I think Silas is kind of a country name where I'm from, Silas. And so I like Silas. And then, of course, Timothy, the beloved Timothy, Paul's uh, child in the faith. And he is writing to the church of the Thessalonians in the town of Thessalonica. And he says, they are in God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So they are in Christ. They are in the Father. And this, again, just really goes to show the equality of the Father and the Son. They're placed together in the same sentence. And, and so you have God the Father, God the Son. You have the church of the Thessalonians that have been immersed into Christ by the Spirit of God, and they are now in God and in Christ. And then Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so obviously, it all begins with God's grace. And until you have experienced the grace of God, you cannot know the peace of God, and the two just go together so wonderfully. As a, as a man or a woman in Christ, if you have the grace of God, you have the peace of God. And this is also, uh, these were significant greetings. The, the Greeks would often say charis, that is grace, when they would greet one another, and the, the, uh, the Jews would say shalom, that is peace. And so Paul kind of couples these together. It's a, it's a, 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 a Gentile uh, greeting and a, and a Jewish greeting at the same time. So we see this in, in all of Paul's writings, very, very typical there. So just kind of start by looking at that. Now I'd like to get into some in, introductory thoughts here. It's been said cynically, it's been said cynically of the church that the church is like Noah's Ark. If it wasn't for the stink on the out, uh, the storm on the outside, you couldn't stand the stink on the inside. You know that's that's uh that's kind of funny. When I heard that, I I kind of laughed. You know, the church is like Noah's Ark. If it wasn't for the storm outside, you couldn't stand the stink on the inside. And you know, for some people, they may share that sentiment, and and honestly, understandably so. People have had some pretty pretty horrible experiences in churches. I won't deny that. But you know, that could not be said of this church. That could not be said of the church in Thessalonica here. This church was a glorious and God-blessed church. This is one of the sweetest letters of the Apostle Paul that he writes to the church. He does not start out by stating that he's an apostle. 
He is not writing to this church as one who is wielding authority and correction. He is writing as simply Paul, the beloved Paul, Pastor Paul, if you will. And this was a church that had a very powerful testimony of God's grace. And they had a very powerful reputation that, that spread throughout that area. So this is, one of the, this is one of the more sweeter books in the New Testament. And I have uh, sweetest, sweeter letters. And I, I neglected this letter for years. I don't know why. I just did not often gravitate over to First and Second Thessalonians until kind of recently. And I have just been so blessed time and time again as I have considered this, this letter, as I have read through First and Second Thessalonians. And so let's consider a little bit, first off, and let me just say this is not a sermon. This is, this is not a sermon. It's just an introductory work of, of the letter. As I said, I'm setting us up. And so this is going to be very much a Bible study today, if you will. But I'd like to just take a step back and consider the history of Thessalonica because it is so very rich. It is so very rich, the history that, that has happened here. So Thessalonica, it's actually modern-day Thessaloniki, Thessaloniki. And it was the largest and most important city in the Roman province of Macedonia. And so we have a map, New Testament map. i got two maps today. We're going to uh, kind of take a look at these. This is, a, this is a great map here. It kind of has everything that you want when you're looking for a New Testament map. And so right there is Thessalonica. I just charged the battery on this thing, so it's extra bright. Um, and so this, this, is, this is where the church is located that Paul is writing to. Now this is down here, Antioch. This is kind of like the missionary headquarters. That's where Paul would launch out from his, his various uh, journeys. And the first time he came up through here into Lystra, and we'll talk a little bit about that. And that was kind of cut short because he got stoned and presumably was left for dead. But he didn't die. Some believe he actually was, was raised from, from uh, the dead at that point. And so into that trip, he came back. And so on the second trip, Paul comes up from Antioch and he goes back out through that same area again, surprisingly enough. And this time he launches back up into this area and throughout. We'll come back to this in a little bit. I'll give a little more detail there. Uh, but for now, just suffice it to say, this is, this is kind of where, this is Macedonia. Macedonia, that's very significant. So this is Asia Minor. Uh, Israel is down here. There are a lot of churches that we're very familiar with here, especially from Revelation 1 through 3. Obviously, Colossae, somewhere over here. Here's Ephesus. That should be familiar to you. Macedonia, we have Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, that should be familiar to you. Achaia down here, obviously we have Corinth. And then up here in Italy, we have the church in Rome. And so these are all very uh, significant to us in New Testament study. So it's just be good to be familiar with that. So if we can kind of drop, drop the map for just a second. So that's Thessalonica. And unlike its neighbor Philippi, it, it had a massive Jewish population. It had a very massive Jewish population, and that's significant. We'll kind of come back to that a little later. Now, one major asset that Macedonia had that, that caused it to flourish the way that it did and to make it really such a, a great place for the gospel to land was a highway known as the Ignatian Way. The Ignatian Way. This was a major east-west highway built by the Romans in the 2nd century B.C., it stretched from modern-day Albania to Byzantium, if we could put that up there. So this, very significant road right here. It goes from east to west. So 
again, here's Thessalonica. As I said, it's modern-day Thessaloniki. Second century B.C., the Romans built this road, and this became a major, major highway uh, from east to west, west to east. And as I said, here's Philippi, and here's Thessalonica, and so there was a lot that happened in this area because of this, this route here, this road, and so that's important to consider. All right, let's drop that map. This was crucial for the spread of Christianity from this place. And uh, William Barclay says this, It is impossible to stress the importance of the arrival of Christianity in Thessalonica. If Christianity was settled there, it was bound to spread east along the Ignatian Road until all of Asia was conquered, and west until it stormed even the city of Rome. The coming of Christianity to Thessalonica was crucial in the making of it into a world religion. And so, such is the wisdom of God in spreading the glorious gospel throughout the known world that, that Paul would travel in that place at that time through that route by the leading of the Holy Spirit, and the gospel would go out powerfully as a result. Now, Thessalonica was founded around 315 B.C., 315 B.C. by a man named Cassander. Cassander was one of the generals of Alexander the Great. If you know anything about Alexander the Great, he's been one of the, uh, one of the, the, the best military leaders that the world has ever known. I mean, he conquered much of the known world in his day, and he actually died at the age of 32. And so he was just a really impressive young man. He was actually uh, mentored by Aristotle, his dad had him to be tutored by the uh, Greek philosopher Aristotle. So he was a very impressive guy, and, and as I said, he conquered much of the known world, and when he died, basically four, four generals under him split up the empire, and one of them was Cassander, and he took possession of this, this area of Macedonia, um, and, and particularly Thessalonica. Now, he actually named it Thessalonica, Cassander, the, the military leader, named it Thessalonica after his wife, who was the half-sister of Alexander the Great. So that's how Thessalonica actually got its name. It was named after Cassander's wife. Now in 168 B.C., in 168 B.C., the Romans come along and they conquered Macedonia. They, they took that whole area up there and they divided it into four republics, four republics. Thessalonica became one of the capitals of one of the republics there, okay? Now, in 148 B.C., it's about 20 years later, 148 B.C., all of Macedonia became a Roman province, and Thessalonica became the capital. So, again, it's just becoming more and more prominent, more and more prominent on the world stage, especially in that region as a capital, especially as Roman history begins to unfold. Because what's really fascinating is that in 42 B.C., so we're talking about approximately 100 years later after that, there was this major battle that took place in Philippi. And it was between the forces of Antony and Octavian and Brutus and Cassius. Maybe you've heard of this. Well, Octavian is who we know to be uh, Caesar Augustus. Maybe you've heard that name, Caesar Augustus. Now, what had happened was is there was an assassination there of Julius Caesar. Does that name ring a bell? There was an assassination of Julius Caesar, 
And there were some people that got really angry about that, so they, they rose up, and there was a great war that commenced as a result, and it was between the forces of Antony and Octavian, who was Caesar Augustus, and then Brutus and Cassius. Well, Antony and Octavian won, and they won in a final crushing blow in the city of Philippi, in the city of Philippi, which neighbored Thessalonica, and Thessalonica backed the winning forces, Antony and Octavian, so they were rewarded greatly after that battle, and that was when the Roman Empire began. The Senate came to an end, and the empire, the Republic came to an end, and the empire began under Caesar Augustus. So all of this is happening right there in that area in this, uh, roughly in these couple hundred years leading up to this time uh, when Paul is, is writing. And so it's really amazing the, the history that happened. Now, Thessalonica is one of the few cities visited by Paul that has existed continuously from his day until now. Thessalonica is still there, Thessaloniki. It's still a very popular place. There's a lot of people still living there. It's very prominent. And there's only a few places that, that you could say that of, that Paul had traveled to, ministered to, planted churches at, and it exists in modern day. There's so much more history that has happened there. There have been several battles that have taken place, several different groups of people who have tried to come in and, and conquer, and they've survived many attacks. But one really interesting fact, in 1941, the Nazis captured it and deported all of the Jewish population out of there and had them executed. Some 60,000 Jews were rounded up uh, under the Nazi regime in, in 1941 and taken out and executed. And it remains one of Greece's most important cities. Uh, as of 2011, the population was 315,000 people. So that's Thessalonica. Some of you are riveted and some of you are yawning like crazy right now. But, you know, it's, it's, the history is just rich. It's good. And so there's, there's much uh, that, that we know about this place, how it began, uh, what has happened throughout its history, how the gospel landed there, how the church was born, how the, how the church grew uh, throughout. And so that's what we're going to look at now. We're going to kind of transition over and we're going to consider how Okay, so that's Thessalonica. That's Thessalonica. Now, how exactly did, did Christianity begin there? How did, how did the gospel come about? And how did the church uh, come about and begin to grow? And so with that, turn with me in your Bibles. Now we're going to start working our way through Acts. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15, verse 40. And then we're just going to do some Bible study here. We're going to walk, walk uh, through the book of Acts, through Paul's second missionary journey, and we're going to kind of see how this church came, came to be. Now, the book of Acts is the, the fifth book of the New Testament. And it is uh, after Jesus ascended to heaven, he commissioned his apostles to go out. And Acts is about 30 years of history from the ascension of Christ. And then it ends with Paul's house arrest there in Rome in chapter 28. The first part of the book really focuses on the apostles, Peter, uh, John, their ministry in Jerusalem and, and surrounding areas, and then partway through it transitions to Saul, who becomes Paul the Apostle, the great missionary. And then it chronicles for us three major missionary journeys of Paul's. And as I had already mentioned, in the first missionary journey, Paul went out and he was stoned there, I believe it was in Lystra, 
That was actually Timothy's hometown. And then uh, he went back. Now, also, uh, what is notable there is that Mark, we talked about this uh, recently, uh, John Mark, he, he traveled with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, and Mark defected. Mark couldn't hack it for whatever reason, so he abandoned ship. And so when they decided to go out again on the second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to take uh, John Mark again. He said, let's take, let's take him with us, and Paul didn't want to. Paul rejected that. So they, they split, and John, Mark, and Barnabas went their own way, and Paul took Silas. So that's how we end up with this, with this team here. So if you look in chapter 15, verse 40, and then it, it moves on into chapter 16, it says, But Paul chose Silas, and he departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches chapter 16 then he came to derby and lystra and behold a certain disciple was there named timothy the son of a certain jewish woman who believed but his father was greek he was well spoken of by the brethren who were at lystra and iconium paul wanted to have him go with him and he took him and circumcised him because he was of the jews who were in that region for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. So now we have the missionary team, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Now, as I said, the first time Paul came through there, he got stoned publicly, and I wouldn't be surprised if Timothy had been there to witness that. Timothy was probably 14 15 years old at that point. Fast forward a few years later, Paul comes back through the town. Timothy now has a great reputation. So it's possible that Timothy came to faith in Christ and that there in that, that time when Paul was, was um, stoned. And uh, now they come back through and Paul sees Timothy and he wants to take Timothy with him. So that's exactly what they do. So they set out and they are now going to go on the second missionary journey and they're going to travel all throughout. So Acts chapter 16, verse 6, it says, Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. And they had come to Mycenae, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And a man of Macedonia, there's that, there's that name, Macedonia, stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia. Notice the we there. Paul is, or uh, Luke is, is here in the scene with them at this point. He said, We sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. All right, so if we could throw that New Testament map back up now. All right, so Paul set out from Antioch with Silas. They came up to Lystra. They took Timothy with them, and they decided to go up into this area. Now, they tried to go to Bithynia, and the Holy Spirit stopped them from doing that. They tried to go down to Mycenae. Same thing. I don't know. We don't know exactly how they were hindered. But the Bible tells us that they were hindered by the Holy Spirit. And so they didn't give up, and I appreciate that. They didn't say, well, the doors are closed, so this must not be the will of the Lord. They, they persevered on, and the Lord did eventually lead them. Now, obviously, they couldn't go north. They couldn't go south. 
they had already come from the east, so they just settled right here at Troas, we're told in the text. So they're right here in Troas, they're right here on the Aegean Sea, and that's when Paul receives this, this dream or vision, I can't remember what it said, but there was a man in Macedonia that said, would you please come over here and help us? We don't know who this man is, the Bible never indicates to us who this man is, he simply has this vision or this dream. So they determined that was God's will for them to travel from Asia up to Macedonia. So they cross the Aegean Sea here, and they come up into Philippi. And so that's where we're at. You tracking with me so far? Does this make sense to you? Okay, cool. All right. So they touch down in Acts chapter 16, verse 11, into Philippi. They crossed from Asia. Now the gospel has gone into Europe. So this is very significant. The gospel has now gone from Asia Minor into Europe. And so this is significant, very significant in, in the, the movement of the gospel message throughout the known world there. And so I won't read, it's a large portion of scripture in Acts, but uh, chapter 16 of what happens in Philippi, but I will just touch on it. We know that Paul gets there, and Paul goes to a river, and there's a, a woman there named Lydia. Now, this is significant. There were not enough Jews in the town for there to be a synagogue. Paul always would go to the synagogues first to reach out to the Jews when he would go into a town. If there were not 10 believing Jews in a town, they could not have a synagogue. So the people who were there, if there were any at all, would go to a river and pray. And so Paul goes to this river and he finds this woman, Lydia. She was a seller of purple. She was a business lady. Purple was a very rare and expensive dye often used for uh, royalty. And so she was a seller of purple. So she was a prominent woman, businesswoman. And, and Paul uh, converts her. She comes to faith in Christianity. So she's the first convert in Philippi. And then we know the story. There was this demon-possessed girl that was harassing Paul for days saying, these are the men, these are the servants of the Most High God. And so finally Paul cast the demon out of her, and her, her, her master, her slave uh, master, was actually profiting off her. She was a fortune teller somehow by the power of, of the, that demonic influence to be able to tell uh, people's fortunes, if you will. And so this guy flipped out because he lost his, his profit, if you will, his business. So he drags Paul into town and... Um, Paul's arrested, and he's thrown in prison, him and Silas, and they're beaten, and they're chained up in the middle of the night. An earthquake hits, and all the doors fly open, and the prison guard assumes everybody has fled, so he's getting ready to kill himself, because there, if you were to lose a, a prisoner, then whatever the charge was on that prisoner, or whatever the punishment was going to be, is now going to be put on you. So this guy just thought, I'm going to kill myself before I have to go through any of that. And Paul calls out and says, hey, we're all in here. Don't kill yourself. So the guy falls down and says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul leads him and his whole household to the Lord. And so these, this is the Philippian church. That's the Philippian church. Lydia, the seller of purple, the, the, de the girl who was demon-possessed, the uh, jailer in his household. And so the next day, Paul is, uh, they find out he was a Roman citizen. They didn't know that. And so the fact that they beat him the way they did was, was a, a serious offense. They could have gotten in, in real trouble for doing that. And so they begged for him to go and to just get out of here and go. So Paul did. And this is where we enter into Thessalonica. So Acts chapter 17, Paul is now leaving Philippi. Chapter 17, verse 1. 
He says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So here now we see right away there are Jews here, many Jews, because there's a synagogue established. Verse 2, Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them for the three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of devout Greeks, and not few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. So now Paul has touched down in Thessalonica. He goes straight to the synagogue there. He begins to reason from the Scriptures. Now we're told he's there for three Sabbaths. Now this is significant. Many people believe that because he was there for three Sabbaths, you could say two weeks with a Sabbath on each, each end and one in the middle, that that was as long as Paul was in Thessalonica for. That he was in Thessalonica for three weeks, for those or two weeks approximately, you know, more or less, and then he had to leave. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I just want to note that right there. And so I'll, I'll kind of circle back around to this, but just take note of the fact that it said he reasoned in the Sabbath for, uh, in the synagogue for three Sabbaths. He was uh, teaching from the Scriptures, and he was explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. So Paul was a gospel preacher. This is what Paul was doing. He would go from town to town, he would go into the synagogues, and he would begin to preach Christ. And so it was a huge stumbling block to the Jews, this idea that the Messiah would suffer, because that was certainly not their concept of what the Messiah was going to be and do. And so Paul would start there, and he would show from the Word of God, from the Scriptures, that this had to happen. And then he would say, therefore, this Christ Jesus is the Messiah. The one who was crucified rose again from the grave, he is the Messiah. He is the, the, the one that has been foretold from the Old Testament. And so that is the gospel message. That was what Paul brought. And that is the most important news right there. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that that was what he delivered that was of, of first importance, utmost importance. Everywhere he went, first thing, gospel, preaching the gospel. And that is so crucial. That's the best news in all of human history. It is the most important message that we could ever hear, believe, or share. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. It is that God's one and only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, lived. He lived here real time and space. He lived amongst man, amongst His own creation. He took on flesh. He who dwelt in heavenly glory from all eternity stepped down into time and space and took on flesh. And he was truly man. He was truly man. And he, he suffered and he was tempted in, in, every, in every point, yet he did not sin. He did not succumb to temptation. There is one who could withstand temptation. One, and it was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the man, Christ Jesus. And he withstood temptation and then he kept God's law perfectly in every point, perfect obedience to the Father, that which no one in all of human history could ever do before or will ever be able to do this side of glory. He kept God's law perfectly. And then he died a heinous, horrific death that he did not deserve. He didn't deserve anything but praise, glory, and blessing. Yet the innocent, the holy Son of God, the Lamb of God, died upon the cross, a sinner's death, a criminal's death, 
And He died in our stead. He died in our place. He paid the price that we should have paid. He drank the cup of wrath. He drank God's wrath that was intended for us. And if you believe on the name of Jesus Christ, if you call upon His name, if you confess your sins and you turn from your sin and you turn to Christ in faith, you will be forgiven. And you will receive the gift of eternal life. You will be filled with the Holy Spirit and you will live forevermore as a child of God and you will be with Him forever in glory and paradise. And that is the gospel message. That is the good news. That Christ Jesus was a sin bearer. That He bore our sin on Himself on the cross. And that sin was paid for, washed away, and He rose again victorious, vindicated by the Father. And now He stands ready to extend eternal life to any who would call upon His name. That is the good news. That is the gospel that Paul preached. Amen? Amen. That is the gospel that Paul preached there in Thessalonica. It's the gospel he preached everywhere. It's the gospel that we have believed. It's the gospel that we preach. And so there was, there was a lot of action happening here. People were believing. People were receiving. People there in the synagogue, the Jews were believing. Proselytes, those are non-Jews who, who believed in the Jewish God, the God of the Old, Old Testament, who is the God of the New Testament, of course. Uh, they believed as well. And we know that there were even people, pagans, Gentiles, that were also believing. So Verse 5, it says, But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathered a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. All right, so obviously there were many people in the synagogue who did not believe, they were not persuaded, and they became quite envious of really the success that Paul was happening in preaching the gospel and, and people were, were coming to Christ. And so they being envious, what did they do? They went to the marketplace, they gathered up a bunch of thugs, literally that's what, the, what that, the language is there, and they basically set them loose to go start a riot there and to turn things, you know, they, they said that the, that the Christians were the ones turning things upside down, but really these, these rioters came in and just created this, this ruckus here and then they, they dragged them, uh, before the rulers there, and they set this charge against them. These, these Christians have come here, and they're saying that, that we, ought to, you know, we ought to worship King Jesus instead of Caesar. Now, that was a serious charge, because as I mentioned before, Thessalonica had great privilege there. They had won their freedom because they, had been, uh, they chose the right side in that battle that took place there in Philippi, and so they had to really preserve that. They, they took that very seriously. So this idea that somehow they would be in support of another king instead of King Caesar, they couldn't play around with that at all. So that, they had to take that, that charge very seriously. And so they took this guy, Jason. Evidently, this is where Paul and Silas were staying. This was a, a believer there in Thessalonica. In his house, they couldn't find Paul and Silas. So they took Jason instead, and they, they drug him out there. And 
And so they basically took money from Jason. They said, here's the deal. You need to basically pay up as a, as a, a security that you're not going to trouble the people anymore. You're not going to harbor more Christians. And so that's basically all that happened from there. And then everybody went home. So in Acts chapter 17, verse 10, the story continues. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness, and they searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. So, um, as I said, some people think that Paul was only in Thessalonica for three weeks. In fact, that's the common view. And what we're going to see is in 1 Thessalonians, it is so meaty. There is so much depth here. People will say, man, that's incredible. Paul was only there for three weeks, and yet he, he could write about these kinds of things. You know, what must Paul have been teaching them when he was in their midst? Isn't that amazing that the Thessalonian believers could actually learn and absorb this kind of deep content? And that may be the case, but I've also heard others who have suggested that Paul was actually there longer than three weeks. He was there three weeks ministering in the synagogues, but then he, was, he basically departed from that point, and his ministry went outside the synagogue, and he began to minister to the, the town, the city more in general. And I, I, I'm inclined to believe that, because he started up his business as a tent maker. He supported himself while he was there. Many of the pagans converted from paganism to Christianity, so clearly he had a ministry that extended far beyond that of just the synagogue, because there were many pagan Gentiles who also came to Christ, and so he was clearly preaching outside of that community too. So I don't know how much longer he was there for, but it seems that he was there probably longer than two to three weeks, I would say. So I just think it's worth mentioning that, uh, because you will hear that from time to time. People will say that. So they go to Berea, they go to the next town over, and they get a good reception. And from this, you get the phrase to be a good Berean. You probably heard this because they actually took what Paul had to say and they searched the scriptures. You know, they didn't just flat out reject it, but they didn't just buy it hook, line, and sinker. They went and did their own study. They studied the word of God for themselves. They saw that these things were true. It had been verified for them in the reading of the Word of God, and they came to faith in Christ. And so they believed on Jesus through the preaching of Paul there. They had good success. Um, but then what happened? The Jews from Thessalonica showed up. I mean, that's amazing to me. That, that is hostility. That is uh, antagonism right there. When you leave the town and go somewhere else, and then the people from the town behind you follow you to stir up another riot where you go. I mean, how frustrating is that, right? And so that's what happens there in Berea. And so now Paul has to, has to take off from Berea, and he goes on down to Athens. So it appears that Paul goes by himself initially to Athens. He goes down to Athens for a time, 
So they've gone from Thessalonica to Berea and down to Athens here. And so Paul's going to be at Athens. It appears that he comes down to Athens by himself. He leaves so hastily. And that when he gets down to Athens, the, the scripture, the wording is kind of confusing, but it seems like that's what happens. And then he sends for uh, Timothy and um, Silas from Berea to come to him immediately. And so they come down to him in Athens, and then Paul's going to go on down to Corinth. That'll be his next stop. And he'll be in Corinth for about 18 months when he does touch down, and we'll, we'll get there in just a second. So this is kind of where we're at at this point. He's crossed over from Troas. They had ministry in Philippi, down in Thessalonica, to Berea, and now Paul has to go down to Athens. We're not going to read all of that, but that's where he preaches that epic sermon of Mars Hill there. And so, um, as I said, uh, Paul sends for Silas and Timothy uh, as soon as he gets to Athens, but then um, it looks like Paul immediately sends Timothy from Athens back, back to Macedonia. And so when Silas and Timothy catch up with Paul in Athens there, uh, if you, I'll just read this for you. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1 now, it seems to correspond to this time. It says, therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. So, they come down, Timothy and Silas, to Athens where Paul is. And then Paul says, you know what? I'm going to send you guys back. I'm going to send you back because Paul really was worried about the state of the church. He had to leave suddenly. It was very abrupt. And for whatever reason, Paul could not shake this burden that he had for the church there in Thessalonica. And so he actually sends Timothy back to Thessalonica to find out, hey, are you guys okay? to further establish and strengthen the Christians there in Thessalonica and to bring word back to Paul as to how they were doing. So, in Acts chapter 18, uh, you can look there, and this is uh, our last little portion from Acts. In Acts chapter 18, verse 1, it says that, um, After these things, Paul departed from Athens, and he went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy, and his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by ocup occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia." And Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. And so we know that when Paul got to Corinth, he was frightened. He seemed to be just kind of burned out, beat down, scared. I mean, everywhere he went, it was just a tumult. It was getting beat, beaten, imprisoned. And so it finally seemed to catch up to him, if you will. And But then... We see that when Silas and Timothy come from Macedonia, Paul all of a sudden has this boost. And he's compelled by the Spirit, and he just begins to testify to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. So something happened that really stirred Paul up here in Corinth. And I believe that a very big part of that was the, the word that came back from Timothy 
regarding the condition of the church there in Macedonia. Again, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6, it seems to correspond to this moment. And Paul says this, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy uh, with which we rejoice for your sake before our God? So Timothy comes back, and he comes back with this great report. Paul, they are doing great. The church is not only intact, they are thriving. And they have a reputation that has gone throughout all Macedonia of how God has worked mightily in their midst and how they have become such a blessing as uh, brothers and sisters in Christ to other Christians in that area. And so Paul was delighted. It seems that this just gave Paul this great boost there in Corinth and he got back in the game and was teaching and preaching Christ there and so that that's what we have and that is what prompted paul to write the letter of first thessalonians paul traveled through thessalonica he had to leave abruptly he could not shake the fact that burden that he had for them so he sent timothy back to check on them timothy did he came back to paul in corinth and said man they're doing great and paul said praise god and he writes a letter to the christians there in thessalonica and that's why we have the letter of 1 Thessalonians. Now, not only was it a great report, but there were some issues. There were some doctrinal things going on in the church that they were confused about. And so Paul also sought to clear up some of those doctrinal issues that were happening in the church. Now, in 1 Thessalonians 5.27, Paul says, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. And that's what they would do. Paul would write these letters, send it to the church, and then the Christians would receive the letter, and the letter would be read in its entirety out loud to the church. So that's what we're going to do right now. I'm going to read this letter to you. We're going to read it all the way through. Don't worry, I've already timed it. It's only about 10 minutes. And uh, this is the way that the early church did it. They would receive these letters, and they would read them aloud to the church. And so with the, this is a long tradition here, 2,000 years. And so, just as the church of the Thessalonians there received this letter from Paul and the glorious writings found therein, so here we are, Calvary Napa, almost 2,000 years later, with the same letter in our possession, and I'm going to read it to you. All right? So with that, let's look at it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one near you in, in uh, a chair. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope, and our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. 
so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts." For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, our laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that you walk worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea and Christ Jesus, for you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they do not please God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up their measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren... Having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith that no one should be taken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to, you, to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. 
But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know that commandments, you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification that you should abstain from sexual immorality and that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness." Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, and indeed you do toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, so you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus." For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then suddenly destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief." You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, 
but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you are also are doing. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for the work's sake, their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every uh, form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And this is the word of the Lord. This is such a glorious letter, and I am so excited to work through it with you guys. And so just a Real quick, and we're going to close, you know, what are the themes of this letter that really jump out to us? Well, I would say there are some sub-themes and one main theme. First, Paul's great joy. Paul's great joy in the condition of the church. That just leaps off the pages. Paul's defense of his own character and ministry when he was there in their midst. Paul's concern over ongoing persecution, because persecution was real, obviously, in that place. Paul had experienced that firsthand, and he was concerned that that persecution would now turn in on them. Paul's concern over them reverting back to paganism. You know, many of them had come out of pagan idolatry, and the concern was real that they could go back, and Paul shares that concern. Paul's pastoral clarification over end-time events, some of the richest uh, writings of the New Testament are right here in this epistle when it comes to the day of the Lord, the rapture, so on and so forth. And so we're going to spend a good bit of time working through that when we get there. But that is some of the most glorious New Testament literature on end times events regarding the, the rapture and the second coming of the Lord outside of Revelation, obviously. And then Paul uh, confronts some of those who are unwilling to work, laziness in the church. Some people have said that it was a matter of like, well, the Lord's coming back, so I'm just, I quit. I'm out. You know, quit my job and, you know, yada, yada. And Paul said, no, it doesn't work that way. So Paul seems to address those issues uh, secondarily. I would say that this is the main, the main idea here, and it really comes in two parts. Paul makes it crystal clear there is no denying they are God's chosen. Paul said, the fact that you guys are standing so strong and have such a, a thriving ministry and the rest of, the, of the, the region is being so blessed by you, it could not be more clear to me that God has chosen you and that God is blessing you and using you. And you really see that theme throughout the letter, just how, just how involved and in control God actually is. Because maybe Paul was tempted to think, think that, you know, he was keeping the church afloat. And because he had to leave, now the church was going to fall. Don't, we, we act like that sometimes, don't we? 
Sometimes we think, what is God going to do without me? Right? And, and maybe that was going through Paul's mind. And Paul said, no, you, God is working. This is God's doing. God has raised you up and God is keeping you. And so that's one very real part of this letter. And then secondly, it's kind of like a now go deeper. It's like God's hand is on you. You are doing these things. You are doing an awesome job. Now I want you to do it more and more. Did you notice that? As we read through the letter, a few times you find that. You're doing awesome, now do it more. Abound more and more. And so the idea is, is that they are rooted, they are established, but they are also going deeper. That is Paul's admonishment, Paul's encouragement. I've heard some people say meant for more. It's kind of like the two, two ideas. God meant, God worked sovereignly, but they were also intended to go deeper and to go farther into what God has called them into you could say they were destined for depth, that they had been called to this, but they were called to go even farther, to go deeper into the blessings of God and into what God has called them to. And so that, I would say that's really the idea here. You know, God is working. God is in control. God is doing an awesome thing. Let's just go into it. Let's, let's go deeper. And that, that's, that's my prayer, and that's the cry of my heart as we work our way through this Thessalonians uh, letter, that God would take us deeper that we would abound more and more into the blessings of God, into, into serving and knowing God and loving God. And I want to borrow a quote from Spurgeon here. We'll close on this. I kind of started by talking about the ark, if you will, and Spurgeon kind of sanctifies that and uses it in a more godly fashion. And so he's talking about prayer here, Spurgeon, but I think this really applies to the whole of Christian, Christian life. And so let me read this to you. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon says, In the ark of salvation we find a lower and second and third story. All are in the ark, but not all are in the same story. Most Christians are only up to their ankles in the river of experience. Some have waited till the stream is up to their knees. A few find the water up to their shoulders, but a very few find it a river to swim in, the bottom of which they cannot touch. That's the kind of Christian I want to be. How about you? I mean, I want to go all the way in. I'm not trying to just wade ankle deep into this thing called Christianity. I want to go in over my head. Don't you? And that's what Paul's calling the Thessalonians to. It's, it's so clear God has called you to this. Now I'm telling you, just go deeper. Go for it. Dig in. And that is my prayer, and that is my call for us as a church. And I am confident that that is what God is doing and will do. Amen?